Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today on An Honorable Profession, I talk with Carrie Douglas and Ethan Ashley. They're school board members in Bend, Oregon and New Orleans, respectively. They're also co-CEOs and co-founders of School Board Partners, an organization dedicated to training school board members to make systemic changes in their districts. This is an inspiring investment in a level of government that, while vital, I think is often overlooked and under-resourced. I encourage you to hear their paths to service, how they engage their communities in policymaking, especially the kids in their district, and how they are dedicated to giving others in their position the tools they need to succeed. This is a good one. Enjoy. Ethan Ashley, Carrie Douglas of School Board Partners, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. Let's start with school boards. They are an important level of government, but you have everybody from the president to governors talking about education policy. How do school boards fit into our nation's educational approach and why do they matter so much? Yeah, I think school boards are fundamental to how we educate young people in our society. I think you are probably familiar and your listeners know that education is not a fundamental right in the constitution. It was left out to the states. And from there, you then had boards that were created in order to do the functioning of ensuring that education was disseminated to the public as a public good. And, you know, I think there's a lot to say in terms of the iterations of school boards over the some century and a half that we've really had them. But the, the truth of the matter is, there is a lot left to gleam in terms of access opportunity, ability, movement, impact. There's so much more that I think school boards can and should be you know, doing. And I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about that nuance with my partner here, Carrie. I appreciate that. Can you talk a little bit, and Carrie, you serve on a school board, about the state of school boards in the United States right now and some of the biggest issues that they're facing? Yeah, absolutely. And I love the setup to the other question too, because as you said, there's a lot of people that talk about (laughs) school boards, but there's about 100,000 actual school board members in America across our 13,000 districts. And as Ethan said, even though a few education decisions are made at the federal level and a few more at the state level, really, really, really critical decisions that actually impact the daily lives of students and families are made by school boards. And so, you know, we try really hard to not focus on the rhetoric, which I would say is kind of the state of school boards right now is a lot of rhetoric, a lot of talking. 
And we really founded our organization and continue every day to focus on actual policy change that will make schools better for students and families and utilize the many levers of power and decisions that school board members actually take every day and to try to do less talking and yelling, (laughs) yelling between adults. Kids come up to our public comment pretty regularly and basically ask us to stop yelling at each other and focus on them. Yeah, let's talk about that maybe a little bit before we get to some of your solutions. Let's identify some of the challenges, right? So one is that the power over education policy is split at many levels. There's always a funding and resource issue. It's highly localized. And then while school boards have always been critical and at times controversial, it seems to, from the outside, have reached a whole new level of incivility, some occasional delusion, like a loss of basic facts and mission. Can you talk a little bit about what the problems are that you see in school boards today and and how and why they should be addressed? And then we can talk about what school board partners do to address parts of those issues. I'm going to say real quickly, one of the most fundamental problems is that school boards are not representative of the populations in which they serve. It's just like the largest issue that our school boards are facing and those who seek to serve oftentimes you know, they're not representative of the population. They don't necessarily have young people in the system. They are a little bit, and I think our data on our, and I, I hate to, I want to make sure I say this. We have a national report called the Empty Seats at Powerful Tables, the State of School Boards in America. And we go on to talk about the data around school boards and they seem to be a little bit more wider and older. And I think that as our community continues to get browner, (laughs) that is a challenge. And what happens now is that we have a lot of board members who are first generation elected school board members, particularly of color. And these leaders are trying to correct some of the policies and practices that have sort of exacerbated the gaps that exist with outcomes for students, experiences for students, and environments for students. And they're hit with, I think, a culture of that's not how things work, when in fact, it is how things work. It just probably hasn't been that way since, you know, after Brown v. Board, when a lot of these policies were put, cemented in place to ensure that certain populations and certain communities, you know, were able to be benefited in ways, which is not, you know, I think in the moment you think about what they were doing, you know, they were trying to secure what they believe in that moment public education was meant to be for the students who were receiving public education. And that's not the truth anymore. Our public education system is overwhelmingly students of color. And I think that's a huge push and lift, but that's just one of the issues. I know Carrie has probably more things to add here. 
Yeah, I mean, Ethan's exactly right. And it's super interconnected. And so I'll just build on the issue with representation really then becomes an issue with the structure of school boards and how they were designed. And so because school boards were designed at a point when most school board members, as Ethan said, were whiter, older, wealthier, you know, it made sense that you were a volunteer. It made sense that the meetings were at night. It made sense that you had the flexibility to attend meetings really any time of day. And And so when we start talking about wanting school board members that are more representative of communities, we also have to talk about the implications of that and how the structure might need to change so that working parents or lower income parents can actually do the job of being on a school board and represent the community and not have it feel like the structure was set up really to make you fail. From the outside, but in other levels of local government, sitting next door to school board, I'm a family member on on a school board. It resonates the challenges that you're facing of a population that doesn't necessarily represent the district and the governance structure being really challenging for people who are trying to look at systems and address them. Briefly, I mean, we may have some listeners out there who are like, I'm mad about my school board doing A, B, C, and D, and my school board doesn't reflect me and my community. I want to run. Make the case for what a school board member can do when they have the tools and resources to make an impact for the kids. Absolutely. The first answer is yes, do it. (laughs) It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And also by far the most satisfying, the most intellectually challenging. I would do it again in a heartbeat, despite all of the pain and challenges. And I think, again, the, the reality is that it's such a powerful position because almost every other role in the system is actually advocating to school board members to make changes. So if you're unhappy with what's going on and you find yourself wanting to speak a public comment or write an op-ed or send an email or complain to your neighbor, or you can run for school board and actually be the person that makes those decisions. And not everyone is going to run for school board. And so it's equally important to one, vote for candidates who are representative, two, donate to their campaign, three, like go speak at a board meeting or send an email. Those are actually really powerful ways to influence how, you know, the school board operates. But run for school board, you get to make all sorts of decisions about which kids get access to which schools and which kids get access to which teachers, what curriculum is being taught, how students are disciplined, all the way down to do your school health clinics provide birth control, right? There are a range of really critical issues that you get to decide rather than complain about or advocate to. So Carrie, let's just talk a little bit about your experience. So you serve on the Ben Lapine School District board. Were you one of these people who ran out of frustration for what you saw out of a specific policy or plan that you wanted implemented? Like what was your motivation and what was that path like for you? Yeah, well, I come from an education background. So I was a traditionally trained teacher, school leader. I worked at the central office of both Boston Public Schools and Aspire Public Schools. So I had really experienced the system 
and all of its flaws from a lot of different positions and still never fully understood the power of school board. Like I kept figuring out like, well, I can do it as a principal. I can do it as a district leader. And then, yeah, President Trump was elected in 2016. And I found myself increasingly frustrated with the state of politics and said I should stop complaining and do something. And school board seemed like the natural place. And so I ran for school board in 2017 and was elected. I've since run for a second term. And like Ethan was the president during the pandemic. So, you know, probably the most challenging leadership period of my life, let's hope. But I think the one thing I'll add, and this really segues into why we created School Board Partners, was that despite having a long background in education, as well as an MBA, really assumed I would nail the position that I just, I'd get elected and I'd be really good at it. And pretty much from the day I took the oath of office, found that I actually had no idea how to be an effective elected school board member. I did not have experience with policymaking. I didn't have experience as a politician. I didn't have experience leading from where you are one of seven, each with an equal vote. (laughs) So really was much less prepared for the job than I thought I would be. And frankly, had a hard time finding high quality training and support and resources to be a great school board member. Ethan, can you talk a little bit about your journey to engaging in school board politics and policy and then how you two came together? That's a great question. So I had the opportunity of being born to educators. So my grandmother was an educator. My mother was an educator. They told me to go be a lawyer. And that's what I did. But before I got there, I, I, you know, my mother was a Head Start teacher, found herself divorced, raising three boys in the 80s, Head Start salaries right now are not crushing it. They certainly weren't crushing it in the 80s, unfortunately. Love my mother. She did everything she could to make sure we were good. But the truth of the matter is we found ourselves on government assistance and you know, really found myself at the mercy of having to go to the local public school. I, in fact, I went to six different elementary schools growing up and then ultimately found my niche and, and had the opportunity to you know, really dig in. Education sort of became a portal for me. I ended up having the opportunity by virtue of policy to attend a magnet school that was outside of my local district. I had the opportunity to attend college before I actually started high school at a local junior college by way of policy and allowed me to go for free. As a result, I ended up graduating high school at 16. I went off to get my undergraduate degree at 19. And and then I ended up finishing my law degree at 22 and went on to do some criminal justice reform work before jumping on the front end of the school to prison pipeline work to do policy work at the state level around education. And I too ran for elected office, you know, just very, very green. I was very green and very excited. I had the policy background. So I thought, you know, I knew how to write policy, was excited about it, but I didn't have the budget chops, right? I, I didn't have the what does it look like to, again, govern when you're one of seven with equal voting power? That was a lot. And so I was looking, and I think Carrie too, we were looking for a good, high quality training supports for leaders like ourselves. And we weren't getting it, unfortunately, at the you know National School Boards Association conference once a year. And it's not because of what the National School Boards Conference is. It, that's just not what they're built to do. 
They're not built to train leaders in that way. It's a conference. It's one experience. And so we were looking for ongoing fellowship experience. And that's what we ended up creating. School Board Partners, we created this space to really provide leaders with the courage, competence to make the impact and really impact student outcomes, experiences, and environments, because that's what we ran to do. And so how could you do it? We basically cut the learning curve for these leaders in a fellowship model to really get down and dig in on how best to be effective in the role. Tell us about that fellowship. What does it look like for a new school board member or maybe even an experienced one who just wants to up their game? What does that look like? How do you support and bend that learning curve? Yeah, that's a great question. So we basically have 32 different modules on six different levers of authority that all school board members must be really good at, you know, from policy and budget to superintendent hiring, firing, evaluation, to just board governance, board goals, dealing with community and policy. Those things are are germane to the job. And so we take you through basically a master's level coursework of trainings that are both set in practical case studies of like boards that are dealing with issues now, as well as the best learnings that we've been able to ascertain from both the experience of board members, but also from the books that exist out there around on governance. And so what I will acknowledge is that we have basically created, without giving people actual credit, (laughs) <laughs> this master level experience. It's like, it's like, it's, it really is like you're going back to college, but you're going to enjoy the experience. I promise you, you'll enjoy the experience because you get a community of practice of leaders who also signed up for this Herculean effort to improve public education. And then beyond that, we really feel like we must outfit you with the best policy, budget, governance leaders around the country to staff you. Most school boards work for free. They Unfortunately, most of our school board members work for free, put a per out for them. But for those who don't, they get a small amount of money. The, the data says most school board members make less than $10,000 a year if they do get paid. And that number is very slim. And so as a result, there's no staff for these leaders. Most boards are working this job after they have worked a full-time job, after they've put their own kids to bed, after they may have made dinner or not, after they may have eaten dinner or not, after they have dealt with all the issues, they spend their, their nights twiddling to deal with these issues. We basically build capacity for you so you don't have to basically sacrifice your own family and well-being to be able to do the role. That's an amazing resource. I appreciate it, particularly as a former elected official and a member of the New Deal Network. It makes all the difference in the world to get out of your own bubble, be able to take policy from other communities, steal it and then claim it as your own. And that's one of the most essential skills in politics, but also have a community of people who are going through a lot of the same things. All of us think we're all unique and all the challenges of our community are unique. And once you start talking, there are commonalities 
that spread clearly from Louisiana to Oregon, at the very least. How did you two connect to start this process? We were actually connected by a colleague at the ULF Urban Leaders Fellowship, who, you know, had a call with each of us and said to each of us, you guys are trying to create the same thing, you should meet each other. And really within days of meeting each other via Zoom, we decided to start this organization because it was just so clear that we both had been building the case for it on opposite coasts and that it needed to happen. And, you know, luckily, We founded School Board Partners in 2019 before George Floyd was murdered and before the pandemic. And we're really poised to help what I think has been probably the most difficult time in school board history since the period following Brown versus Board of Ed. And I think just to put a point on it, because we haven't had a chance to say this yet, we really exist to try to dismantle the racist and oppressive policies and systems that were explicitly created, mostly following Brown versus Board of Ed. And by the way, Ethan likes to point this out, and it's so poignant. Like most people don't know that the Board of Ed was a school board. <laughs> like that's who we were talking about there. And then following that decision, it was thousands of school boards across the country who created policies to essentially continue de facto segregation. And many of those policies are still on the books today. So when we talk about the work of our fellows, it is to try to dismantle these calcified, you know, policies that have been in place for decades at minimum, you know, coming up on centuries in some places. So that is hard work. And so you're talking about people who are often people of color or from a minoritized identity to start with. And then they're trying to change these incredibly calcified systems that benefit some of the people in the system. And you just need a community. You need staffing. We also provide executive coaching. We provide self-care. Like We are just wrapping around these people because they're doing some of the hardest work out there. That was my question because the best fellowships say, we're going to give you this training. We're going to give you this capacity. Now we expect more from you, right? Uh, We expect you, (laughs) like, we're not just investing in you just for fun. We're investing in you because we want impact. Can you talk about what those calcified policies are and maybe give some examples from some of your fellows of of how they're addressing them? That's a great question. So of the four areas Carrie really spoke about, leadership development, good governance, racial equity, and self-care, you know, we have policy supports that we give where we will essentially go from beginning to end with you on drafting a new policy that may exist. So, for example, we have in different districts where there, I think I talked about this earlier, essentially we have a lot of firsts on boards where There's a first Latinx board member who serves on a majority white board serving majority Latinx students, and they have language access issues where the board has never put in place a language access policy to ensure that the majority of their students and their families can actually access the information that has been sent out. And basically, our fellows would create this type of policy to ensure that access is being able to be had, right? Or discipline, right? Uh, There are a slew of policies that our fellows are really working down and towards to dismantle. And 
yeah, I think that's a more simple version that is really, I think, critical to even access to understanding how to start to engage. And from there, there are more complex versions of this from families. When I think about the work that we do to increase student outcomes, experiences, and environments, we think about environments. We had school board fellows who were finding themselves with families and students saying, I'm in a school that's named after a slave owner, and I don't understand why this still exists in 2023. Can we change this? And you know, I think about, you know, Baton Rouge had this happen, my district had this happen, and we ended up creating policy to change that fact and then end up changing building names that were more conducive to our current state of being. And you know, I think that is an example of of running the gambit around racial equity and just access. But there are, are so many more policies that exist that we've been able to push through and help our fellows to really, you know, cement from evaluation of superintendents, which is one of the most critical roles that we do. We hire the superintendent, no one else hires the superintendent. And yet, in most places, the evaluation process of the most critical agent of an education system is rarely done with scrutiny or fidelity. In fact, I think teachers would say they're held more accountable sometimes than the superintendent. And so for us as board members, we got to make sure that we're holding them accountable to the goals that exist and that the budget reflects that, those goals and those changes. And so we really get into the weeds on how to make sure that everything aligns when you start to change things. And again, I can go days on days on all these policies. But what I will say to finish this out is we try, to your point earlier, once we get a good policy going, we put it on our website to make sure that it exists in a way that people can come and scoop it up, make it your own. And we actually have internal support to ensure that we take into consideration your local context and try to mold that policy to provide for your local context, understanding that every district is different. I want to take a moment because I imagine that there will be people who look at a school board or maybe even serve on school boards, listen to this, who say, I am just trying to keep my head above water. I got increased mental health issues. I got sometimes crazy debates being forced upon us. I got teachers resigning. I got all kinds of staffing problems. Making systemic change in this time sounds impossible, but with every crisis comes an opportunity. What's your case for why and how change could be made now versus just sort of trying to be a responsive local elected official at a time that are that's that's really challenging? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it there at the end. How do we use crisis as opportunity? And first, just want to acknowledge that what you said is so true. Our teachers are beyond overwhelmed. Our school board members are beyond overwhelmed. And this is the perfect time to say the entire system is no longer working. It maybe never was. Well, It certainly was never working for all kids. It was kind of working for some kids. But now that the pandemic and, you know, what has followed around mental health and all the challenges has made us realize that the system actually maybe now isn't working for most kids is the time to address the big systemic issues. And so our goal is to help our fellows focus on big things like 
attendance policies, like which kids get access to which schools, you know, financial policies, funding formulas, rethinking staffing. Like this is the time when it's really not working <laughs> to not just try to make little tweaks, but to acknowledge that the system really needs to be dismantled and rebuilt in a way that better serves students, but also teachers and principals and families. Can you all talk, I mean, school board politics are hard because of these many challenges. They're also hard because normally people who may be allies conceptually on a lot of these issues begin to have problems when it may impact what they see as their own child's education. And so what do you advise school board leaders to do when they make these changes to keep themselves and the policies politically viable so that they can get reelected and continue to make change? That's a great question. The thing that you know we haven't talked about here is that Carrie and I are both parents. And so when you think about why we really serve, you know, I can certainly say that, you know, I'm trying to make sure that my experience growing up isn't the exception to the rule, but rather the rule. But our real anchor in this moment is our own children, watching them grow through our system and making sure it's better than what we experienced it. And so I will tell leaders all the time, if you center the work in children and get their input to center the policy, it's hard for your colleagues to then say, this is you in a selfish political way. At some point in time, we all need to acknowledge that the system in which we went through in terms of education was good for us in our time. Just like you talk about rap, or if you talk about basketball or baseball, everyone's going to tell you their era of experiencing whatever it is was great. At some point in time, we got to move on and allow those young people who are in the system today to dictate how we really answer the call to improve their outcomes, experiences, and environments. And from there, if we do that, it's really difficult for, not impossible, let me acknowledge that, but difficult for people to say you are moving on your own political spectrum of trying to get stuff done. Now, I'm trying to make sure our students have better outcomes, experiences, environments, as I hope you are too, and I'm listening to them, right? How do you engage kids in their education and having them think about their educational experience and how it can be improved? Yeah, I mean, we've seen it done in several ways. I can talk about a couple of things we're doing right now in my district, and I just couldn't agree with what Ethan says more. I mean, it's kind of the like, keep it simple, stupid part of politics. It's like, talk about what keeps our parents and kids up at night. Like, just close your eyes, put yourself in their shoes and talk about that. And so, you know, with students in Bend, Oregon, we've done a couple of things. One is that before we do any major strategic planning, we do a really, really deep community listening, you know, dozens of focus groups that are affinity based, where students and families can come together with people who look like them, facilitated by someone who looks like them, or is experiencing, you know, their same identity and talk really honestly about their experience in the schools. And then what that allows us to do as a board is constantly refer back to that. So all the time we're saying, this is what our students and families told us that they need and want. Like, it's really easy to Ethan's point to point back to that. It's not about me. Look at page 17 of this, you know, community listening report. They said it right here in black and white. 
So that's one way. We, like many folks, have a student advisory committee to the board where we have representatives from each of our high schools and hopefully soon middle schools who get together once a month to talk about what's on the upcoming board agenda and actually provide their input to board members. Some folks have student reps actually on their board. So it's not that hard. (laughs) You just have to do it. Encouraging them to come and speak at public comment, making sure that we want to hear student voices at public comment. There's lots of ways and it's incredibly powerful. And to your kind of earlier point about any policy change, there's going to be some winners and losers. Students are brilliant at figuring that out. Like you tell them that there's a limited amount of money and that some kids need more and some kids need less. And like, that's obvious to them. They can figure out how to distribute funding in an equitable way naturally. So I think we need to turn to them much more. I got to say, it's been a long time since I've used the word hope in context of a school board. But this conversation, I love what you're doing. And I think this kind of investment in local leaders that often don't get talked about can have profound impacts, not only for the leaders themselves and the systems they work in, but in the other communities that look at these models and say, well, if Bend is doing it, if New Orleans is doing it, we can try it here, right? And we all know in government, it's much easier to take an existing model and bring it to your community than try to reinvent the wheel. I just want to thank you both for your service on the school board, for caring about our kids, but also for this investment in a generation of leaders that make amazing school districts. And then hopefully we'll uh, go on to set state and national policy that is supportive of all the other folks who are serving at the local level trying to do this good work. Thank you both for joining us and thank you for creating School Board Partners. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate everything that you are bringing into the space, giving us the opportunity to do this. You are certainly doing God's work here. I just want you to know that, my friend. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.